Good to have you here. Thanks for coming today and being a part of our meeting today. Uh, we're carrying on our series in the book of Galatians, which we're calling Free From. And today we're dealing with this subject, Free From Slavery. And I'm going to read straight away from Galatians chapter 3, verses 29 through to chapter 4, verse 7. And the words will appear on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible with you. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. And because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. The questions I want to ask today, and which I feel this passage is helping us to answer, is this. Who are you, and how do you relate to God? Who are you, and how do you relate to God? These verses seem to have an awful lot to say about that correct question, if you are a Christian. But they seem to be two big questions in and of their own right, whether you believe in God, whether you're a Christian here today to not, today or not, then... The question that you will ask yourself periodically is this, well, who, who am I? What's my life about? Is there a God and can I know him? And these verses have so much helpful that can show you everything about who you are and, what, and the way you can know God. Jesus um, told probably his most famous story in Luke chapter 15. And the story goes... It's the story of two siblings, and you might know it's the story of the, the prodigal son. There's actually two sons in the story, and the, the story is probably well known. That You probably know that the, the, the younger son, he said, Dad, I, I'd like my share of the inheritance now. He takes half the money, he goes off, he, he squanders it all. He spends every last penny to the point where he is destitute and desperate. And he finds himself feeding pigs. He's on a minimum wage job. And as he's sitting there thinking, this is rubbish, he thinks, you know what? Maybe I could go back to my dad. And although I've blown the relationship with my dad, even though that can never be the same again, he says, he's a kind man, so I think he might at least pay me the living wage. He might like, at least give me a decent job. So he goes home, and as he's practicing his, sorry, dad, would you give me a job speech? You know the story, the dad comes running down the street and the dad won't even listen to a word he says. He just throws his robe over him and puts his ring on his finger and he says, let's throw the biggest party this house has ever seen. It's quite an amazing party. You could hear the music coming from all around. He says, my son is back. Fast forward to the other brother who's been out in the fields. He doesn't know, the other, he doesn't know his rascal brother has come home. And don't you love the points of reference Jesus uses that, I mean, who here has got a brother or a sister? Who, who knows what it feels like when your mum and dad spoilt your brother or sister and did something nice to them and you thought, this is rubbish? <laughs> well, this is exactly what happens in this story. 
This brother thinks, what is going on? This is rubbish. My brother has gone back. He's spent half the family money, and my dad is spoiling him. And so the dad goes out to see him and says, come on, come and join the party, son. And the words that he uses are fascinating. In Luke chapter 15, he says... He says to his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Isn't it fascinating? One son, he thinks he's wrecked things so badly with his dad that the only way he could ever relate to him again is on the basis of being an employee. The other son, he's never gone far from home. He's always been in his father's household. Yet the relationship he had with his dad was one of a slave. He couldn't work it out. He says, well, dad, you never gave me anything. You never rewarded me for all my labor all these years. And his dad was like, well, hang on, this all belongs to you. I've never said this doesn't belong to you. You're my son. And it seems to me that Christians will often fall into one of those two, uh, tend towards one of those two dangers, that either you will find that your life has got such a past and you've done stuff wrong that you feel that that disqualifies you from having genuine relationship with God and God loving you and enjoying you. At best, you'll think, you know what, God's forgiven me. He's given me this beautiful new white coat This robe of righteousness, which if you remember, uh, sorry to just rehash the illustration again for the third time, but our sin, covered by the righteousness of Jesus, dealt with. So whenever God looks at us, he looks at the righteousness of his son. He's dazzled by his son's beauty when he looks at you now. But kind of inside we're thinking, well, you know what, maybe what I need to do in response to that is just to work really hard to try and pay him back. And we forget this more wonderful truth that actually unbutton the shirt and you're actually a son and God loves you as a son the other son just through familiarity he's never really understood that even if he had run far from home his dad would also have loved him that his behavior had led to uh, acting as an employee because he'd never experienced the father's love Today, God wants to bring you into a knowledge of your sonship and his fatherhood. So as we approach these verses, it's helpful to, um, to point out some uh, cultural references which are different for us. There's words in here which we don't use every day. Things like heir and adoption and slave. And it's important to say that these things, even if you do know what they mean, they probably mean something different as we read them in these verses, than what you might mean them to me, uh, think they mean today. So, for example, when we think of slavery today, we, we think of the, the awful multinational trade, people trafficking, and uh, it's hidden, it's criminal, it's gang networks, and all, all that sort of thing. It, it, Paul isn't making any comment on, the, the, on slavery and whether it's good or bad. He's simply using an everyday illustration. He's saying, this is, this is, look out your window, you Galatian Christians. You see slaves wandering down the street. You see households with slaves in them. In the Roman Empire, houses were complex affairs. Households were, you usually had the head of the household. 
the master of the house, and he would marry, and then they would have children, who, uh, the oldest of whom would be the heir. And because death was prevalent in those days, there would perhaps be remarriage, and there would be other children brought in, and there would also be slaves and servants, all in that same household. And terms like adoption got used to ensure that property rights got conveyed correctly down the generations to make sure that the right person got the family inheritance. Now, the, the word child as well, as you read that, because as you read those first verses where Paul says, as long as the heir is underage, he is no different from a slave even though he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. If you just go forward a couple of slides, please, that would be... The next one as well. That's great, thank you. So when Paul says a comment like, well, it's not so different being an underage child and being a slave, we might think, well, that does sound kind of different to us. You know, because in our world today, children have rights. Certainly from birth until... Maturity, children have rights in our culture. That's a wonderful thing. You can't just uh, abuse a child. You can, it, that's criminal. That's wrong. And that wasn't always the case. In the Roman world, children had no rights. In fact, to, uh, the, the, the sort of whole concept of children in, in, in sort of philosopher speak in the day was because they were unable to think rationally, they had less value in society. So value was all to do with rational thinking, ability to think. So people looked down on children. They said, well, they're, they're just like animals. They, they, they don't have the, the ability to think and articulate coherent thoughts. So therefore, they were put to one side. They were, they were given over to the care of slaves during their upbringing in order that one day they might be adults. And then, hey, it'd be great, we're, we're, we're adults. We can all converse together and have rational conversation together. The value of children was what they would potentially become, not what they were. It's wonderful how the Christian gospel changed the attitude to children entirely. Jesus said, let the children come to me. And everybody was like, whoa, really? And Christians down the ages have taught, actually, no, children have value. Children should, should receive uh, a blessing, and children should receive education. And I love, if you're a children's worker here or a teacher here today, I love what you are doing with children, which is that you're treating them with dignity and you're treating them as equals, saying, actually, these people matter. That's a hugely important calling and a hugely Christian calling. But it wasn't the case in the Galatian province, a province of Rome. If you were to call your friend a lad or a boy, that might be a term of endearment in this culture where you say, you know, he's such a lad, isn't he? It means you're kind of a bit younger than you really are. If you called somebody a lad or a boy in the Roman world, it was like the ultimate insult. So this is why Paul's making this point. He says, well, a slave and an heir, the young boy growing up in the house, they're not really very different because they're both despised. One day, one of them will get everything. Sure, that's the difference. Up to age 14, the child under the Roman system would be given a pedagogue, a slave, who would just basically ensure that he grew up. And up to age 25, he was given a financial guardian who would make sure he would not be able to spend any money without authorization. 
And so that's what Paul's saying in these verses. This is the picture he's saying, as long as the heir is underage, he's no different from a slave. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees till the time set by his father. You don't have freedom, whether you're an heir or whether you're a slave. That's the picture. Now, what are we learning from the picture? He tells us in verse 3. He says, so also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. He says there's a slavery that we were under. When you come to Christ, he likens it to, to coming of age. There's a coming of age when you become a Christian. And this is what he's saying. Before that point, there was a slavery that you were under. Whoever you are, whether you were Jewish or Gentile, whatever your background, there was a slavery that you were under. And there was a slavery to what the translators have put here as the elemental spiritual forces of the world. And if you're not totally clear what that is, then um, it seems like the translators weren't either, because that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us as we read those words. It, it means something like this, we think, as we, as we try and decipher that. If you look in your footnotes, or if you click on your footnote on your uh, iPad as you read this, it will say something like this. It could mean basic principles. So Paul's saying, well, you were in slavery to the, to the basic principles, the ABCs. What are the three R's that you learn at school? Reading, writing, arithmetic. I never understood that. Spelling obviously wasn't one of them. The ABCs, it, it, it's the stuff of life. Two add two is four. The, the things that will help you get by in life, no matter what background you're from or what culture, these are the basic necessities. Your parents will teach you to wash your hands before a meal. They'll teach you to take your shoes off when you come into a house. They'll teach you not to jump into a car with strangers. But it's pretty basic stuff. It's not the kind of stuff that adults keep talking about. Your grown-up parents don't ring you up as a grown-up every week and say, so... Uh, have you, have you washed your hands this week? Of course they don't. It's basic. For the, for the Jewish believer, there was also combined with that the whole sense of Jewish law and Mosaic law, where they'd been taught, well, this is what's expected of you if you're growing up as a believing Jew. It also has this connotation, the, the, these elemental spiritual forces. It kind of means the stuff of life. The cultural conditioning we receive, quite literally it means kind of the earthly elements, fire, water, earth, air. But it came to mean the things that shape us socially, psychologically, politically. The forces that determine how we think and what we expect, how we react, how we behave. If I was, I won't ask for answers or shows of hands on this, but you will probably find yourself on, on a spectrum here. If I was to say SNP or Labour, some of you would be in one or the other, or perhaps a different camp. Some of you, Scotland or England, Hibs or Hearts, Classic FM or Radio 1. Yet the likelihood is all of these decisions are probably things that have been squeezed upon you by your cultural upbringing. It's likely that, except for a brief few teenage years, that one day you will vote exactly the same as your parents. Mark Twain made this comment. He said, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could, hardly to stand, I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. 
See, culture shapes us, and therefore, it's a limiting thing. Culture can be a wonderful thing, and it gives us some sense of identity, but it, it always draws a line and says, well, this is the acceptable limits, and these are the things that we're not comfortable with. So therefore, it draws a line. It, it, it enslaves us and restricts us. Culture is a restrictive thing. The Jewish people, within just a matter of hours of the Ten Commandments being issued on Mount Sinai, they'd broken a whole heap of them, making idols, committing adultery. Liberating as it sounds, the idea of ever-increasing personal self-freedom. You can't have that at a, without a cost of other people being hurt. The idea that I can pursue personal self-gratification it will always come at the cost and the risk of us becoming slaves and addicts to the very thing that we enjoy. The good news is this, that according to the gospel, our identity is never to be found in our basic principles. It's never to be found in our upbringing or the things that have squeezed us and shaped us because when Jesus comes into the world, it changes everything. And these verses are about Jesus giving you and me a new identity in him. And there seems to be two stages to this. The first part, the first word we use is this, adoption. Verse 4, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son into the world. Somebody asked me the other day, they said, on the Alpha course, they said, well, why did Jesus come into the world at exactly the moment he did? And I don't have a hugely good answer to that question, but it appears that Paul would say, well, he came at exactly the right time. He didn't come a moment too soon, and he didn't come a moment too late. God sent his son into the world at exactly the right time. Even as we were singing earlier, I was aware that for, for some of us here, you're trusting in God's timing for things, and you're praying prayers, you think, why hasn't God answered that one yet? Why is he answering for that person over there yet? Over here, I seem to still be waiting for my answer to prayer. You have to know that if God can get his son into the world at exactly the right moment in human history, he can certainly answer your prayer at exactly the correct time in your life when you need the answer to that prayer. If God can get it right for his son, he will certainly get it right for you. So he sends his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That's saying this, that he, he was born, even though he's divine, he was born of a woman, he was born human. He was born under the same constraints that we face. He was born under Jewish law. He lived out that law perfectly. But this was the point, to redeem those under the law. The word redeem is it's linked to the whole slavery analogy being talked about in these verses. So if you went to the slave market in Galatia, you would find slaves for sale, human beings for sale, with price tags on them. It's an awful thought for us. We know that you can't put a value on a human life, but this is what they did. And you could buy a slave, and 
in Roman culture, it was slightly different than you perhaps might imagine for a slave, that slaves often in later life would be freed by their owners, and they would also be paid through their life. And the hope was this, that one day, if they worked really hard, they would be able to pay their master and free themselves. They would pay the price on their head in order to get free, to become a free citizen. Well, this is the image being painted for us here, that when God sent his son into the world, he came to redeem the slaves. He came to pay for the price of everybody who was a slave to their cultural conditioning, a slave to their failure to keep the law of God. Jesus doesn't come as a lawyer to argue our case or a counsellor to console us in our prison cell. He pays the price to get us out. But then it goes even one step further than that. You see, there's something in our world, we kind of have freedom as the ultimate identity. To be a free citizen is the best thing of all, but there's limitations to freedom. If you've ever seen the film The Shawshank Redemption, there's a, a character in it, he's kind of a side character, but his name is Brooks, and he's a long-term resident of Shawshank Prison. And he's known nothing else in his life. He committed a murder at an early age, and he's just spent his whole life in prison. He doesn't know what it is to be a free man. And so when they finally let him out on parole on, uh, towards the end of the film, he just doesn't know what to do with himself. He, he doesn't know how to enjoy his new freedom. And things kind of turn bad for him. He tries to do things in order to get himself back into prison again. So he thought, at least I knew what my identity was there. You see, when Jesus saves us, when Jesus takes away our sin and gives us freedom, he also gives us a new identity. He makes us his children. And the word son is often used in scripture not for any other reason than this, that the sons in Roman culture received the full inheritance, and the daughters received less. So in referring to both men and women, Paul says, you are sons of God through Christ. You receive the adoption to sonship. You receive this new identity. That's who you are now. You're adopted. God sends his son into the world to make you his son. The full inheritance belongs to you. The legal papers are signed. You now have the full rights of the firstborn male heir in that culture. But do you know, there's even more than that. So God gives us freedom. He gives us forgiveness. He gives us adoption, which is the, the legal sense of being called his son. But then verse 6 takes us a whopping step further. It says, because you are his sons... God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Here's the wonderful thing. Because you are his son, God sends the spirit of his son into our hearts. Isn't that amazing? It, Let's remember that you become a Christian by the work of the Holy Spirit. You're born again by the Spirit. You can't become a Christian unless the Spirit works in your life to transform you and make you His. But this seems to be saying something more than just becoming a Christian. This seems to be saying that we have an experiential understanding of the love of our Father in heaven by the Holy Spirit. 
And this is what God is calling you into, and this is what God is saying over you. Because you are his son, he pours out the spirit of his son into our hearts. Sometimes you can hear a funny Christian teaching around that says, you know, look, if, you're, if you want to receive more of the Spirit and if you want to receive God's power in your life, then you need to be really holy and really good and really earn it. And, and the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says because you are his son, he pours the Spirit of his son into your heart. The good news is this, that you need the Holy Spirit in order to change you. Therefore, you can't reach a certain standard and then say, God, give me the Holy Spirit, because you need the Spirit to help you reach that standard. God sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. And the cry that comes from within us is this phrase, Abba, Father. Abba is an untranslated word. It's an Aramaic word. The the New Testament was written in Greek. The language of the day was Aramaic. And the word Abba is the very first word that a child would utter as a toddler. As he would run to his dad, he would call him Abba. Yet it it wasn't just a childish term, it was the term that grown-up people would use to speak respectfully and lovingly towards their own father. And it it was a way of expressing dependency and love and respect. And the spirit of his son in us is calling out to our heavenly father, Abba. But it's a phrase that you also find that Jesus used. So in Mark chapter 14, you find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. And as he's praying, as he's contemplating the horrors of the cross, he prays this prayer, he says, Abba, Father, If you can, take this cup away from me, but not my will, but yours be done. It was the term of intimacy and love with which Jesus the Son talked to God the Father. That perhaps gives you some understanding of the relationship that God wants you to enjoy with him through the person of Jesus, that you can call him Abba. There's another phrase that Jesus used, which is untranslated in the New Testament, and it's while he's on the cross, and he calls out to God on the cross. And it's in those moments when darkness comes over the earth. And it says, Jesus called out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll be looking at some of these phrases on Friday night at our Good Friday service. But there was a moment in Jesus' life, Jesus enjoyed intimacy with the Father in eternity past, throughout his earthly life, But there was a moment on the cross where God cut him off while he paid the price for the sin of the world. And Jesus did that so that the Father would never be far from you, so that Abba would always be close to you, so that you could always say, Abba, Father, and have this response, yes, my son, yes, my child. God makes you a son by the Spirit. And you experience his sonship by the Spirit. But here's the other difference with adoption. As as God makes you a son and as God puts his life into you, it changes you. A number of years ago, I I had to have some blood transfused into me. And 
that was transfused. That blood, no doubt, came from some very generous people because they, they had given their blood, and I was very grateful for that. That, that blood, whilst it, it helped me, it, it didn't give me any of their character qualities of the donors. I didn't suddenly find myself kind of acting in funny ways, like, oh, that must be the blood inside me, just kind of making me act differently and strangely. When God puts the spirit of his son inside you, it changes you, and it makes you act differently, and it changes your personality and your behavior, and it makes it more like Jesus. And there's a wonderful work, and, and much of the rest of Galatians is about this very issue that God is at work in your character to make you more like Jesus. Sometimes people say, well, the, the, the problem with the, the, the picture of justification, which is this, that God gives you a clean robe of righteousness. He clothes you with Christ so that your sin is no longer relevant to your relationship with God. They say, well, that's only half the story because actually God also needs to transform your inner character in order to make you stop loving sin so much. And that's what he's doing. I went to um, the ice cream shop around the corner the other day with uh, my son Sam. And uh, as we were just eyeing up the ice creams, this sort of big Italian guy behind the counter, he, he, uh, he kind of smiled and he looked at me and he looked at my son Sam, who's nine, and, and he just pointed to me and he just smiled and he says, you look the same. <laughs> Which I was really thrilled about. And uh, Sam says he was. Uh, but it, it, here's the thing. You are being made to look like your heavenly father. Isn't that incredible? That the longer you are a Christian, this is God's aim and plan for your life. The more your identity will be, not simply that you're called a son of God, not simply that you're called righteous, but you will look like a son of God. Sometimes, uh, I'm going to draw a quick picture here. Um, we, uh, what's that? It's a graph, thank you. Uh, I was going to use a flip chart, um, but Chris said we're not buying any more flip chart paper. He said, he said that my, my drawings were so limited in value that they weren't keepers, <laughs> and we would never, ever go back to them. He said a whiteboard is the thing for you, really. So, so here we are. So here's a graph. Some people, they think that when you become a Christian, if, if, if we plot on this scale here, this is... Um, likeness of Christ, okay? And here's your age as a Christian. And you become a Christian here, and throughout your life, you're becoming more Christ-like. And, and if you ask people their experience, this is what they say sometimes, like, well, you know, when I became a Christian, it was like a bit of a boom and a bang, and it was like, whoa. I just felt like everything was changing. I read my Bible every day. I was praying and, and I was telling people about Jesus. And then over time, this is kind of what people say. Like, and things just, you know, I got a job and I kind of got married and had kids. And, you know, I hit 40, big moment. And, <laughs> and then things just plateaued. And, you know, I'm just kind of rumbling along about this level somewhere as a Christian. And, and yeah, I, I feel like God's made some progress in my life. But it's beginning to tail off the longer I'm a Christian. That isn't the picture of what the truth of what the New Testament says. This is what the New Testament says in, in, two, in uh, 2 Corinthians 3. It says, we, it says, the Lord is the Spirit, where the Spirit of the Lord is liberty. It says, we who reflect... Uh, we, uh, it, it, let's read the verse, come on. <laughs> oh, dear. 
you know the one I'm talking about. Here we go. Right. It says, We who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the transformation. It might not feel like this, but this is the transformation going on in your life. It's degrees of ever-increasing glory. That means... As each year succeeds to year, as you cooperate with the Holy Spirit in your life, you have this exponential curve of God working in your life. Now, if you were to zoom into that tiny little dot there, it might feel like this sometimes. But the truth is this. God is at work in you. And that transformation is going to be complete one day when Jesus comes again or or when we die. And the Bible says, when, when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. That's 1 John chapter 3. Uh, the, the knowledge of our being children of God. In this life will always be imperfect. You won't find a perfect Christian in this life. But all you'll find is this in heaven. Jesus, the Father, will make us fully like Jesus. It says creation is waiting eagerly for the sons of God to be real. It's, it's, it's waiting for this moment when God transforms us. When God makes us look like sons of God. At the moment, you look at the person next to you, and they look pretty ordinary, don't they? I mean, have a look at them right now. Ordinary. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know that you were sitting next to a son of God, a child of God. But one day, that will be revealed, and everybody, the whole of creation will be going like, whoa, amazing. That's where God is going in your life. That is yours through the adoption of sons. Let God give you a big picture of who you are in Christ, forgiven of your sins, cleansed of your sins, declared to be a son, adopted as his son, and one day will be seen fully to be his son. Amazing. I love it. Why don't we stand and pray? We're over time. Although the clock says 11. Could we go for another hour? (laughs) Right, let's stand. (laughs) Hallelujah. Lord, we, we want to thank you that you are at work in us. Oh God, I want to thank you that you've, uh, you've done such an enormous work in redemptive history, Lord, that we can't even begin to get handles on it. We could talk for hours and hours about this, Lord. But Lord, I just want to pray, Lord, for your revelation to come into our hearts by the Holy Spirit right now. Just reach out to God where you are. Some of you have been acting like employees before God. You think, because he's been so kind to you, now you've got to live your life for him. And you, you're, what's absent from that equation is the love of the father, the sense of adoption as his child. So Holy Spirit, just come and illuminate right now. Some of you here are feeling like God owes you something. You've been slaving away for years and you feel like God hasn't come through for you. God wants to remind you he loves you. He doesn't care what you do for him. He loves you as his child. For some of you here, you need to step into this relationship with God, this most incredible, wonderful thing of becoming his child. And it comes simply through putting your faith in the work of Jesus for you. If you feel like God's putting his finger on striving in your life, that you're, you're trying to earn his reward, 
rather than enjoy his love for you, then just, just raise your hands where you are. Just believe God wants to touch you and fill you with his spirit. We welcome you, Lord. Come and bring your liberty. Thank you, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And freedom to know our identity in you. Some of you, God's putting his finger on, on false identities. Our culture trying to squeeze you into its mold, saying this is, this is your identity, this is what we think you should be. Be encouraged to, 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 to define yourself in terms of very, very basic worldly values. God says, you are my child. That trumps all of that rubbish. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So Lord, we pray, work in us. Keep helping us to grow from one degree of glory to another, Lord. Keep working us. Thank you for the spirit of the Son so freely poured out into us. Thank you we can never earn your spirit, Lord, but you love to give him. And we pray, Lord, fill us with the spirit as we go and as we enjoy this week. I pray, Lord, that we would know your pleasure and love over our lives. Amen.